0: And thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna, and we are going to be speaking to Rachel Harris, who is a PhD and the author of Listening to Ayahuasca. She received a National Institute of Health New Investigators Award and has published more than 40 scientific studies in peer reviewed journals and has worked as a psychological consultant to Fortune 500 companies in the United Nations. So the copy of the book that we received from her, Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, PTSD, and Anxiety, explores how ayahuasca is being used in a Western psychospiritual context. The book is based on Dr. Rachel Harris's original research, which stands as the largest study to date of the ayahuasca underground in North America. Dr. Harris includes stories from her own journeys with ayahuasca and how she integrated those experiences into her daily life. So I would like to welcome Dr. Harris. Thank you so much, April. I'm glad to be here. Yes, thank you. And I'm so glad that we stumbled upon your work. Uh, for our listeners who like to listen to our episodes in a consecutive order here, it was episode 90 where we interviewed Dr. Christine Breeze, and she is the founder of the Gaia Sagrada Retreat Center, where they do ayahuasca ceremonies. And after I finished that podcast, I was left with the question with, well, well, what happened to these people? You know, she kind of touched upon the experiences that they had there, but I was always very curious to see how did they go on living their lives? Did they integrate that experience? Did it really change them or bring them a spiritual awakening? And this is kind of like the meat and potatoes of this research study in this book that you have just put out to the world. That's exactly right.
1: And I asked those questions because in addition to a research background, I've, um, my career was 35 years in private psychotherapy practice. So these are the, these are the psychotherapist questions. After an intense awakening experience with, with, in a ceremony with ayahuasca, what happens afterwards? How does the person's life change? How do they change?
0: And those were the research questions I asked. Yes. And your research was really <clears throat> extensive too. And I know that we're going to kind of get into that. And I do want eventually for us to talk about some of the obstacles that you ran into just with the control groups and, you know, some things that you couldn't control for in regards to doing the study, because I know some of our um, scientists, people out there are going to say, well, what about, what did she do with this? And what did she do with that? So I'm, I'm looking forward to get to getting to that and yes. more in the middle of the podcast, but <clears throat> okay. But first, let's um, dive into and talk about really your first experience with ayahuasca and how this kind of led you into wanting to do this research. Yes, well, I
1: I sort of fell into my first experience. I I didn't know what I was getting into, and and this should maybe I should stop talking about this because this is not my recommendation. But the truth of the matter is, I um, it was uh, in the middle of winter in New Jersey where I was living. And I wanted a beach vacation, so I signed up for a retreat center in Costa Rica on the beach. And a few days before I left, uh, someone organizing the, the the week at the retreat center called me and said, "Do you want to participate in the ceremonies?" And I brilliantly said, "What ceremonies?" And I had no idea. And but once I realized what I what I had fallen into, I was all ready. And. Um, I was lucky enough that this was a legitimate situation with Ecuadorian indigenous shaman, and we were all very well taken care of there. And I had um, a, a very intense first experience that sort of bonded me to this medicine from the very beginning. And the very next morning, like anyone with a research psychotherapy background, I woke up with questions: How did this happen? How does this work? What does this mean? And you, you can't ask these Western research psychotherapy questions to Ecuadorian shaman. They cannot be you just. They you know they don't care for one thing. That's not that's not their cosmological view. And so, um, but I was uh, I I was. Uh, I was really changed by that experience. And I can just dip into that experience kind of briefly. And it was, uh, I got to re-experience my father's death. My father had died under hospice care in my home uh, six or seven years before this ceremony. And at the time he was dying, I had an out of body experience where my understanding finally it took me a year to figure what what this was is I was sort of traveling partway with him and um and it terrified me frankly and so I stopped it I zoomed right back into my body and that was sort of the end of that and I didn't I didn't know this was really difficult to integrate I didn't know what to do with it and so in a way, the ceremony integrated that previous process for me. And I was able to enter into it again and continue on that journey that I had basically aborted. I had been too terrified to continue. And so that was uh, my experience in that first ceremony is that I continued up into the cosmos and had this um, basically a mystical experience up in the up in the starry heavens and um and there was the emotional experience of reliving my father's dying and resolving you know the last conversation and hearing his voice again it was it was a complete in vivo reliving of it and so i was extremely grateful the next morning and this was one of these therapeutic experiences where i didn't really need to talk to a therapist the experience in ceremony was itself therapeutic That's not always true. Many people have experiences in ceremony where they do need therapy, and we'll talk more about that. But this was one that the ceremony integrated a previous experience. So it's interesting, these different ways of sorting things.
0: Yes. And then I'd like you to next go into the story about you meeting grandmother ayahuasca and the messages that she kind of gave you and pushed you in regards to actually doing this research study. Yeah.
1: Well, after a couple of ceremonies, I literally heard a voice and uh, the voice was very simple and the voice said, do the research. Now I don't generally hear voices. I haven't (laughs) <laughs> I've heard anyone else's, you know, external voice like that, and I knew this was not my own inner voice. I, I've worked for years in this area. I know my inner voices. This was this was a different voice, and um, so it felt like a mission. Now, you know, people. Feel that they've been given different missions by grandmother ayahuasca, and they don't always make sense. I mean, people can build castles in the sky and say it's a mission, but this was a mission that I was particularly well suited for, and um, there were there were no more instructions, so I was I was quite free to develop the project as as I as I wanted. Um, I have to say, as I'm developing clarifying the project developing the research questionnaire interviewing people to sort of understand more about what questions to ask i was in a ceremony and i heard a voice say involve lee in your research and lee was my research mentor during my career he'd been retired for 20 years and um had been a nationally recognized researcher with a lifetime award from the American Psychological Association. This is a very prestigious researcher. And um, in the ceremony, I felt like I was about 15 years old and kind of like a bad teenager. And I kind of answered Grandmother Ayahuasca back. Well, I've already called him. You You know how teenagers have that tone of voice. And she very patiently replies back. She says, no, involve him more. So a couple of days after the ceremony, I call Lee, and I say, Grandmother Ayahuasca told me to involve you more in the research. So there's this pause on the other end of the phone, and he just very simply says, okay. (laughs) And so we did this project together. And um, I continued to get consultation from Grandmother Ayahuasca, and the most amazing was, not under the influence at all, or even near a ceremony, I hear a voice and she says, she basically in, interprets the data differently than we, we had it written up for publication. And she in, she talks to me about a different analysis of the data that we got. So I call Lee, now. now he's used to this process. And I say to him, Grandmother Ayahuasca had this to say about the data analysis. And he says, okay, well, let's think about that. And it it just, her consultation at that point just shifted the way that we looked at the statistical findings that we had. It didn't, you know, you can't interpret things widely different, wildly differently, but it just sort of shifted the clinical interpretation of the findings. And um, I do, I, we would not have done that on our own, we would not have looked at it that way. And just very simply to explain it, we got, um, I had a comparison group, and so I had a group of people using who had used ayahuasca and a group who had been at a spiritual retreat. And um, the ayahuasca group scored um, more spiritual on a couple of the variables. and we were saying, you know, great for our team, sort of, <laughs> you know, they're more spiritual. And Grandmother Ayahuasca said, look at the means, the mean scores. They weren't, if you, they were statistically significant, but not clinically different terribly. So maybe somebody was... Um, had uh, an experience of unity that was a 4.0 on a five-point scale, and and the mean for the um, retreat group was 3.3. That's not a, you know, both of them had an experience of unity. And so we looked at the scores and thought, well, they're statistically different, but they're not really clinically that different. Both groups are clearly having a spiritual response to their experiences. And so that's how we summarize the data analysis. And I, I think we, we wouldn't have done that without my hearing her voice again.
0: Yeah. So can you uh, describe to our listeners how you collected these people, um, to be in the study? I remember in reading your book, you were like, you would take any phone call and, um, you know, anyone <laughs> still that was do. contacting you that wanted Anybody to talk know. about it. Yes. I just always say yes. Um,
1: Yeah, you know, we, uh, it was, I limited the research to ayahuasca use in North America, because I wanted to know how Westerners were using the medicine, which is different than it's traditionally traditionally used in the jungle by indigenous villages. And the Westerners are using it for uh, psycho-spiritual purposes. And it is like a rocket boost in that process of unfolding that is a psycho-spiritual path, where people are doing psychological work and spiritual work. The ceremonies are often just a huge boost along that path. And so I wanted to hear from Westerners. Um, and and so it was. Uh, I was really researching underground activity. Ayahuasca is illegal in North America, I- outside of a couple of syncretic um, Brazilian churches that are, have the right to use it as a sacrament, not a medicine. And, um, but I was interviewing people who were in the ayahuasca underground and, and what I found was, and I had a 16 page, uh, questionnaire with mostly essay questions. So, You would think that would be very hard to get people to do. It took them hours to complete this questionnaire. And then they would write me personal letters after they completed the questionnaire. They were so happy to talk to someone about their experience and what had been happening to to them since that they were really thrilled to have an organized way in this questionnaire to describe their changes. And um, so it was what's called a rolling admission of subjects. Somebody knew somebody who knew somebody else, and we were just handing questionnaires out, and they would get mailed back to me anonymously. What was really interesting is I didn't even think I could get a comparison group. This is this is the very beginning kind of survey research, which will answer all the scientists who say, where's your control group? We are so far away from that level of research with this phenomenon of ayahuasca we can't control you know i had no idea what people were drinking and there's no way to control that yet in terms of potency or dose so there are huge complications that that are beyond our control to begin to even look at what's happening so this is the very first level of of tell me about your experience so i never even thought i'd get even a comparison group But a friend of mine was leading retreats at a retreat center, and she said, I will have the director of the retreat center hand out the questionnaires for you after an intense um, weekend retreat. And so we collected, we were able to collect uh, data from people who were in a very different kind of spiritual experience and compare the two groups.
0: Yeah, and I, I would like, if if you don't mind, like sharing some of the data that you collected and hearing from the experiences from the people. One of the things that I found um, really interesting was that it seemed like most of the people really just felt this overwhelming sense of self-acceptance and self-love and Overall love, I mean, as I got down further into reading more about the research and the studies, people were eliminating alcohol from their diet. Their, their whole diets were changing. Um, you know, some of them would go to a vegetarian or a vegan diet. Some people never returned to alcohol or any other substances that they were using. Almost as if they, I think one person had said that they saw the darkness behind <laughs> what was there. Yes, they saw alcohol as a poison. I'm never mm-hmm. drinking that
1: again is um yeah so let, let me say there was there there were themes to the self reports yeah. and uh, the themes you you're absolutely right and of course you picked the most clinically important one is the level of self acceptance um, people did feel more accepting of themselves they felt more self love and they felt more loved in their being in the universe they felt sort of more acceptance about uh, being here in this life. Uh, So it's a sense of more permission to be who they are. And uh, as therapists, we all know that's sort of a central healing uh, variable that we want to have happen in psychotherapy. Their moods improved. They were less depressed, less anxious. So there was mood improvement. Um, their interpersonal relationships improved. They, were, they valued all, uh, authentic communication in their relationships and they uh, had more patience and more appreciation in their relationships. One, one of the questions in the questionnaire, and I only had a few people who managed to do this, is I said, is there anyone close to you who would just write a paragraph about how they've seen you change? Um, and one 20 something guy in his fifth year of college had his mother describe his changes. And his mother wrote, uh, that he was m- much more, um, uh, respectful and, uh, much more patient with her and that their relationship had improved and she didn't really understand what he was doing, but she appreciated the benefits to her. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's that sort of thing that gives uh, confirmation of what the person is self-reporting. So their relationships improved. And then there were all the health behaviors that basically therapists are not very good at getting people to change their health behaviors. And um, and somehow spontaneously uh, people, as you say, would stop drinking, would uh, start eating healthy, you know, f- fresh fresh foods and vegetables, I mean, they just spontaneously began to improve their health and to exercise. So there were I mean, a couple of people reported losing forty pounds, which is really significant. I've been waiting for that for myself, but it hasn't happened yet. but <laughs> um, and that leads me to the the another way I look at how people change is some people change immediately. They never they never drink alcohol again. Uh, they stop eating junk food. They they just um, you know immediately a depression of a lifetime is lifted. It's like a cloud disappears. So I I I call those miracle cures. I didn't know how else to describe them. We don't have any way of explaining them. I have you know as a good clinician, I have followed people up for like I, some people I've known for six or seven years, and I I talk to them a couple of times a year. And and they have not had any alcohol. I mean, they are not in trouble with alcohol. So we don't know how to, ex- and, and after one ceremony, we don't know how to explain this. So those were the miracle cures. And then other people, there's been a gradual healing. So they gradually, you know, maybe the depression doesn't lift immediately, but gradually they, after a, a process of going to repeated ceremonies, they begin to feel better. And so that's more of a, you know, of a process that they, they're, they've they entered into. And, you know, people who still think, you know, like, well, the drug, of, you know, it wears off and then they're back where they started. Well, that's that's not how we view antidepressants. You know, someone doesn't take, you know, one week of Prozac and then they're better. I mean, they're lucky if they're better in a month. You know, there are many people who don't respond to antidepressants, the medical antidepressants. So... <clears throat> um, what we have found is that uh, people t- uh, go to ceremonies repeatedly, so they keep, they um, they get a, a little bit of an antidepressant effect with every ceremony, and it kind of builds in them, and there's a shift. So that's sort of more of a process, and meanwhile, they're working on the psychological issues that come up during during the ceremonies. So there's a process of healing that happens. It's not a miracle cure, but it's a process.
0: Yeah, and this might be a good segue into talking about how ayahuasca can increase, if I read it correctly, some of the serotonin uh, in the brain. And I know that uh, you also talk a lot about the DMT. Um, that's also a part of the ayahuasca ceremony. So can that's
1: you talk- that's the main active ingredient in ayahuasca. But they're finding that there there are other chemicals that are active also, and this level of research is just beginning. But all the psychedelics increase serotonin. As a matter of fact, it was research in the '50s with LSD that led to uh, the discovery of serotonin as an antidepressant and that eventually led to these the SSRIs, the new antidepressants that um, hold the serotonin in the brain longer. And so ayahuasca is a psychedelic and like the other psychedelics, it, it has its own biochemical way of increasing the serotonin in the brain. And that's part of the explanation for how it works as an antidepressant. But even that doesn't explain... No antidepressant works miraculously immediately. And so this is not... We don't have a full explanation of the mechanism yet. And I, I, that's going to be a long way off before we understand it. And the research on um, on LSD and on psilocybin is really leading the way. Because ayahuasca is a tea that's mixed from two plants, the ayahuasca vine and the chacruna leaves. And it's boiled for 12 to 24 hours. There are different processes of creating, developing the tea depending how much of the bark of the vine that you use or not and how you filter it. So there's no way to control for the potency of this brew. It, it's different with every plant that's picked. And from an indigenous point of view, they say the the potency of the medicine depends on what songs you sing when you harvest the plants. It depends on whether you harvest them in the morning or the evening and what songs you sing, and what prayers you make as you're as you're cutting the vine. Um, and the indigenous people have. Different ways of looking at this plant. So they talk about um, blue, black ayahuasca vines, blue, uh, yellow. They have different. They differentiate within these same plants, but Western botanists don't don't understand the differences that the indigenous people are seeing. They see the same plant, but they they don't differentiate it. So the indigenous people have more refined ways of identifying the type of ayahuasca vine, and the the effect it will have when it's made into a tea, what it will be like in ceremony. So there is a lot of mystery that will take
0: decades to figure out. Yeah, and I remember reading that people can actually buy some of this online to make their own homebrew. Um, well, which- you know, the plants themselves are legal. They are just plants, so they
1: are legal. Once they're mixed together and the DMT is available in that brew, then it is illegal in in North America.
0: Okay. And one one of the stories that you had where it was kind of a group, they were facilitating their own type of ceremony and nothing was happening. And it wasn't until they actually started to play uh, the music of an ayahuasca ceremony or having... um, it was something of of that nature and one person went off to the bathroom and everybody had like entered into their experience and the person that was coming back from the bathroom like it took a while before that person was able to get into it because he had left while um, they were putting on the music to try to initiate something to happen right you know the one I think one of my best sentences and
1: I it was uh, it almost came as a sentence that was almost channeled I I don't even understand it fully myself, but um, the, the 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 chants that are sung during a ceremony are called Icaros, I C A R O S, and so the the perspective is that the Icaros, are the me- are, uh, the songs are the medicine, not just the medicine is the medicine. The songs have the same healing power, and there are um, artistic designs of mazes and grids. You might have, well, for instance, similar to the cover of the book. the The power is also in the visual designs, and so the medicine can come through um, different modalities. At uh, with someone who's very experienced. And so when the person left the room and didn't hear the Icaros, the the, the tea that they had drunk sort of didn't get triggered. And so um, they kind of missed the takeoff, so to speak. Everybody else was gone. Once this, this is a story I heard, and then once they settled back in and they were listening to this recording, then they also joined into the ceremony and their their state altered. But the um we don't have any way in our culture, in our Western worldview, to understand how can how can power the power of the medicine be
0: transmitted through through a visual design or a song that we hear. Yeah, after I read that in the book, I went right on to YouTube and I did a And you search. listened. <laughs> I listened. I was like, oh what is this? Let me see. And you know, of course, without, I'm not drinking anything. I'm not taking ayahuasca, but I'll tell you that oh. you know I just went into a meditation to see if I could sense and feel the vibration of, of <laughs> what I was listening to, and. There was, there was something just in the listening of it. it. I can't really explain it. It was very different, uh, different sounds that I had ever heard before and a resonance. And uh, I had really cool dreams that night after meditating and listening to it. It was right before I went to bed. Oh, um, you're, you're very sensitive and tuned in. You tuned into the energy. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, we can understand that between us and I hope your listeners. But scientifically, we have no way of explaining that. Yeah. But there is there is a resonance
0: that is carried in a power and, and uh, an opening that happens. Very yeah. much so. There was almost a part of me saying, well, I wonder if just listening to this, I could maybe have some sort of experience. Maybe I'll call upon grandmother ayahuasca to come and gently, you know, help me without having to actually drink the tea. <laughs> um, but the other you thing have, that I thought was know really how interesting that works. That's was how some people... Now, some people in a ceremony where you have said that grandmother ayahuasca will not come to them or it's not their time and that some people can actually drink it. And nothing happens, which I found really amazing, too, because you would think there has to be something physiologically that that would happen. I mean, how could you drink this substance just knowing what what it is and the chemicals that, you know, can be produced and released and somebody not having a reaction, which to me really speaks to the very spiritual component of this?
1: Yes. The, and these were good friends of mine. And um, I had. I had dragged them down to Costa Rica for a ceremony. So you can imagine, you know, the effort of, you know, the investment they have in traveling down to Central America and and the buildup to this great experience. And they sit there and they drank two to three times what I drank. And they're experienced people with um, spiritual work and psychological work and psychedelics. They're very experienced people on, on their path. And they sat there bored to tears. And there were two ceremonies that week, and, and nothing happened at all. And, of course, I asked the shaman, and uh, the shaman's answer was they weren't called. And um, I have to say, because these are close friends of mine, the uh, the the wife um, continued to uh, do ceremonies, and she, she does now get a response. And she's on her own path with the medicine, and the husband chose not to. And he was probably not called. And so how do we understand this? I still don't really know. But I can say um, that it was better that neither of them got a response there. Had she had an incredible experience and he sat there bored, that would not have been a good thing. <laughs>
0: right, right. right.
1: Yeah. That, that would not have made them a happy couple. So (laughs) it was better that they were in this nothingness together. (laughs) And then she continued.
0: So what would you say shocked you the most of this research study that you did? I mean, was there anything in particular that you really weren't expecting? Um, I mean, given that you had some prior personal experiences with this, you kind of knew and could probably relate very well similar to some of the stories that, you know, people were sharing on, on some level. But was there anything in particular that really just blew you away or shocked you and you weren't expected expecting to find what you found in the study. Yes, yes, absolutely. As I developed the questionnaire,
1: I spoke to different Western shamans, people who had been trained by indigenous shamans over decades, I might add. It's a very long training. But who were Westerners and understood what I was doing and asking research questions. And one particularly intuitive female shaman said, ask them about their ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca so i i was i was in the i just sort of did as i was told whether it was you know a, a grandmother ayahuasca telling me to do something or it was a shaman i just you know when i got advice i just followed it so i included that question in in the questionnaire and but what really shocked me i have to say is 75% of the 81 people who completed a questionnaire reported an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. Hmm. They dreamed about her, they um, connected with her in meditation, Uh, they felt she was always available to them, she was supportive and loving, sort of like being the perfect therapist or the perfect mother. This this entity, this spirit was always available, always loving, always responsive. and, and sometimes could be, um, um, you know, wasn't always uh, positive, could be loving, but could say things like, get a haircut, clean up your room, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing to a, a, a 22-year-old guy. He said, oh, yeah, Grandmother Ayahuasca talks to me. This is what she said. <laughs> and so, you know, she has that grandmother voice of, you know, s- s- shape up um but she is always available it's like and so that's an incredible source of um healing for self acceptance and i just i was I, I i even now can't really understand it how could so many westerners accept this kind of a relationship but but that's what people consistently report and even like you're right on the edges of saying you know, I have some sense of a spirit I can communicate with. Um, She even comes to people in dreams or in meditations, people who have never encountered the medicine. Ah, so I do have a chance. (laughs) Well, you know, it's not always good news. It's, you know, it's not a fun experience and it's hard to know where is a safe situation and who can I trust and and what's an authentic shaman and an, an authentic ceremony? And what, what are, is it safe? And am I in a safe setting with safe people? And what am I drinking? These are really difficult
0: questions to answer. Right. But um, people do get cold. Yeah. Now I know with your background and your history in uh, being a psychotherapist, you also had a lot of interest in trying to figure out how ayahuasca could mm-hmm. treat anxiety, depression, addictions, and post-traumatic stress.
1: Yeah. And some people are beginning to write about it's helpful for eating disorders, which are, you know, traditionally very hard to treat. So we don't really know what the limits of the medicine are therapeutically. And then there are reports and I, you know I didn't go into them in great detail because we know even less about people report medical cures and you know I that's very hard to evaluate so that was not the focus of my book but we don't know um how ex- how valuable this medicine is or or even just different as chemicals within
0: the medicine we
1: don't yet know the full applications
0: yeah now do you want to talk a little bit about how sometimes there might be this argument that ayahuasca is addictive and also hearing that it's not addictive, but that it's classified as a Schedule One drug uh, by the U.S. Controlled Substances Act? Well, means- you know, we have to- Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Go ahead. Go for it.
1: Mar- marijuana is also classified, Schedule um, being dangerous and having no medical benefits. So you can see how out of date the scheduling is and how behind the research it is. And um, even how behind the the states, um, you know, the states have already passed laws legalizing medical marijuana when federally it's considered a dangerous drug with no benefits. So we have real contradictions going on in our culture, legally and medically, around these medicines. And the research is just beginning on psychedelics in in hospital settings, um, with government-approved uh, research protocols, they're just beginning to. As they've established the safety, the next step is to begin to explore the applications. So, for instance, I, I mean, I you know, when I did my questionnaire, I didn't even ask people about their um, smoking, their tobacco behavior, their smoking cigarettes. It just wasn't. I just I didn't even think of it. It's a. It was a, a miss on my point. But on my part, but um, Hopkins has a, a a pilot study they've done where um, I think 14 out of 15 people stopped smoking cigarettes after uh, an, a a a process of psilocybin's um, experiences, along with supportive therapy, and um, you know this is not based on their self-report; they they're being tested for tobacco in their system to make sure they're not exaggerating. Um, and so what you know tobacco what tobacco costs us in national health care is so much more than a couple of sessions of psilocybin. It, it, you know the benefits are n- not just humane, but they're also bottom line benefits to these medicines. But ayahuasca will be the last of the uh, of the psychedelics to be, Researched because it's so difficult to control.
0: Right. And I know in your book, you actually do have a copy. You have it right there for people to see what your research questions were. And I'm wondering, as you do more interviews and people hear more about your research study, that more people might come out of the woodwork and want to give you their experience. Are you going to be collecting data um, as long as you possibly can? Or, uh, you know, if people are reading it and saying, well, maybe I'll submit my experience to her and I'll answer all of these questions. Do you continue to have, are you going to continue this research? Research. No, I'm not, I'm not doing ongoing uh, data collection, but there, there, I have a
1: website, uh, listeningtoayahuasca.com, and on the website, I'm going to take um, one question a week from someone describing their experience either during a ceremony or after, whatever the impact is, and I'll, I'll respond to that question. Not that I have real answers, but I can at least talk about the issues in my response. So the first question was about um, uh, having intense anxiety uh, during the ceremony and, and toward the end of it and afterwards, and, and how can I handle that? And one of the things that I I, I want to really say that we need to do as an, as an ayahuasca community and really as a whole country is we have to take a look at how we take care of each other. And... Um, In all the psychedelic research that's done, they have uh, a male and a female therapist sitting with the person, and they stay with the person throughout the whole experience and afterwards for as long as that person needs. And this is also what they do at rock festivals when there's a harm reduction tent someplace you can go if you're having a, a bad experience. Somebody stays with you until you're all the way through it, and we have to begin To find ways to do that um, after an ayahuasca ceremony, that if somebody is still feeling uncomfortable in some way or anxious, that they have someone who is with them to help take care of them. So, the example I use is um, one person told me the story of he had carpooled to a ceremony. Afterwards, they did the share, the next morning, they did the sharing circle. People talked, people had a little breakfast, packed up, and left. And that probably took three hours or so. So maybe he got home by lunchtime or one or two in the afternoon. He was still highly anxious. He wasn't tripping. He wasn't still um, under the influence that way. But he was basically moving into a, a, a panic attack. And his friends, he had carpooled, his so-called friends, or maybe they were just uh, acquaintances, dropped him off at his apartment. He went in, he dropped his bags, and he, he um, got a taxi to the emergency room. He was he knew he was going into a full-blown panic attack, and he needed something to stop it before it got much worse. He should never have been left alone. And we have to learn how to stay with each other until um, everyone is in a, a comfortable uh, state of consciousness. And this is about how we take care of each other. in in the in the old LSD research that was done, um, in the 50s and 60s in Maryland, if if uh, they were working with within a mental hospital with um, inpatients, and they they after an LSD session, that person um, had a buddy, a, a staff person stayed with them for the next 24 hours. That's how careful they were with what happens afterwards. Mm. So we we have to do better just in the care we give each other. But the, but um, I'm not, back to your question, I'm not really collecting data, but I will respond to one question a week. And and I have for years, because, because the results, the, the way people described their benefits, they were so overwhelmingly positive, I began to actively look for bad trips. <laughs> and so, you know, well, you know, this is part of, you know, there's always the dark side, right? right? And so... Um, Uh, If anyone wants to write to me through my website about a bad trip, I'd be happy to hear that, (laughs) you know, tell me the bad news. Um, And I did collect, I did interview a good number of people who had what sort of started out to be a bad trip. But the way they would end their story was, looking back on it now, it was really helpful, and I'm glad I went through it. Well, that changes everything, doesn't it? I don't know if I would call that a bad trip. (laughs) Right, exactly. So. So I'd be happy to hear those stories, and and then just to you know be realistic, there are reports every once in a while that come from um, out of uh, ceremonies in South America. Every once in a while, in the underground, um, of somebody having a, a medical emergency and dying. That's rare, but it has happened. We don't. There's nobody who's been able to say medically. This is a direct result of the medicine. That's not the case. It might be some other intervening variable, and we don't know for sure. But certainly some people can have a psychotic reaction. If they have a history, they can have a a psychotic reaction to any of the psychedelics. Uh, The psychedelics are, part of what's healing about them is they are destabilizing. They change our... um, habitual ways of seeing and thinking and feeling and so for some people that's too destabilizing for others it's a relief and they feel they're unburdened and can be more creative and see things differently and and be different in the world so if there's you know there's some things to be careful about and one is if there's a history of of um uh, of psychotic breaks Okay. I would, I would personally not take that risk. It's too big a risk. Mm-hmm.
0: And do you have any recommendations for our listeners if they, you know, again, like you said, it's illegal here in the United States, and basically people find find out through word of mouth in order to go to a ceremony. And I know that you mentioned that there were those two churches. Um, but what would you recommend that people look for to make sure that if they do want to undergo a ceremony like this, that they are doing it in a safe way?
1: Well, they want they want to be sure they're in a safe, private setting. So, um, for instance, there was an article in The New Yorker, which is famous for its investigative journalism, which I'm very glad they're doing now. But this was in, written in last September, last fall. And um, the author went to a ceremony moderated by a sort of yoga teacher, so-called shaman. Who knows what that was about? Who knows what she drank? And the ceremony was held in Brooklyn next to a bar with music blaring. So the noise of the bar was filling the ceremonial space. It was not a good experience. And so don't do that sort of thing. I mean, I was really kind of devastated that the that she missed an opportunity to have an authentic experience um, you know for an authentic experience there was a um a chelsea handler went to um work with a peruvian shaman i think they flew to peru and filmed a uh, two nights of ceremony that she was in and that was an authentic experience and you can see her legitimately working it's really quite something to see, um, to see that, that she, that she allows us into her experience with that. And she talks about it afterwards, and that was her first experience, and so she knew she missed something. So she went back alone with the shaman for a second night, and a lot of stuff came up for her about her sister. And when she came back to the States, she called her sister, and they worked on their relationship. Now, that's a great model of an authentic rela- uh, an authentic ceremony and somebody really taking action um, and healing a relationship in their life based on their experience. So it's, it is really all about safety, and I have no magic answers because even I've, I have people who are very experienced, got very good referrals, and ended up in a situation that was not a great one. Mm. so i there's no easy answer to this but i have to say it should be an authentic shaman and the training takes decades not i've been i've been doing ceremonies for five years and i'm working with a shaman in you know somewhere in south america and now i'm going to lead
0: a ceremony it's decades of training yeah well, this has been really a great interview. I was, it couldn't have come at a better time for me, you know, to get the book because my, you know, I had questions out there after the last podcast, like I said. So I just ate this book up. It was great. Again, I'm so the book, glad. The book is called Listening to Ayahuasca, uh, and thank you, Dr. Harris, so much for being a guest on our show today. Thank you so much, April. And can you just let our listeners know one more time uh, the name of your website and where they can go to get more information? The website is listeningtoayahuasca.com. Excellent. Well, thanks again, and I really enjoyed this interview. Thank you so much. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepassseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at Vimeo.com, gaimtv.com and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at thepastseries.com or send us a tweet at The past Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.